I'm going to take you today to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, only a couple of Gospel writers even refer to this event. Only two out of four. And the other one only gives it a glancing mention. We're left with Luke, really the historian of the New Testament. He writes the Gospel of Luke and he writes the book of Acts. And we're left with him to give us the details of this story. Other than him, we would not know that this had happened. Only one other person even mentions it. But it's powerful and it's beautiful. Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Now, this is long before the days of the spiritual gift of Facebook. So it could be that they'd just never seen Jesus up close enough to recognize him. That would be technically possible. But there's something more going on here. Because the Bible says their eyes were holden. Something uh, spiritually was concealed from them for a moment. And Jesus walked with them. And they didn't even recognize him. Um, would you hang on to that Bible or your phone or whatever? And I, I just like you to just say, God, would you speak to me from your word today? Would, could we all pray that? That's a safe prayer. That's a beautiful prayer. That's a consequential prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for this great church, the leadership that uh, you have given all of this great team. It's so wonderful. You have blessed this people for a purpose. You have blessed this church to be a church of regional and international influence. And you have blessed this place with the crowning joy of your presence. And I thank you for it today. And now, God, as we turn to your word, let your word come alive in us today. Let your word explode in our hearts and be revealed in our minds. And most of all, let your word make a difference in our lives. We thank you for that. We give you all the praise for that. And we worship you today, Jesus. You are truly so good. That's my amen. Would you put a praise on the end of that? Lift it up as high and as great and as loud as you can. And let that be your amen to that prayer. you, Jesus. You may be seated. It is the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus. The disciples are demoralized. Most of them, in fact, are in hiding. Now, you can criticize them if you want and say you should have believed and you should have had more faith and you should have been braver and bolder and bigger and badder, but for them... Their hopes and their dreams had been viciously nailed to a cruel cross and buried forever in a dark tomb. For them, it all died when they saw Jesus die. It all ended 
when they saw that huge stone rolled into place over the gaping mouth of that grave that now literally mocked their faith. You, you can criticize them if you want, but for them, on this day, there is nothing left to live for because everything they ever believed in is now gone. And so two of those disciples, um, they decide there's no sense in lingering anymore in Jerusalem. So on the morning of the third day, they get up and they pack up their little bit of stuff and they head home to their little village of Emmaus, which is about eight miles northwest of Jerusalem. And you know how this goes because we're all the same, basically. As they walk, they talk. And as they talk, they just get more and more and more discouraged as they pour out their hearts. For them, nothing is right in the world. All is lost. There is no reason to smile. There's definitely no reason to hope or believe. And then some stranger just kind of comes up beside them and joins them on the little winding road to their village. Now, you and I know who he is from hindsight. We've got a 2,000-year-old record from Scripture, but they have no such luxury on this day because his identity is completely hidden from them. And so when he walks up to them, they don't recognize who he is. And when he begins to talk to them and ask why they're sad, they just dump three full days of heartbreak and heartache, frustration and fear. They just dump it on him. Verse 17, he said unto them, what manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And one of them, we know his name is Cleopas, he answered and said, he just blows up. Really? Are you just a stranger in Jerusalem? And really, you don't know the things that are come to pass there in these days? Like, serious? Are you so disconnected and isolated and you're not in the know? You really seriously don't know what just happened in Jerusalem that has rocked our world. And the stranger looks back at them and I can imagine in my mind this little kind of smile playing at the corner of his mouth when he says, what things? As if he wouldn't have known. And then they said unto him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Oh, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And you really, seriously, have not heard how our own chief priests and our own rulers, they delivered him to be condemned to death and they've crucified him. Seriously, you, you haven't heard? They are unaware of his identity. They just pour out everything, their disappointment and their heartache. Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet unlike anybody else we'd ever heard. His words rang with an authority that just stunned and shocked and amazed the crowd. We'd never heard any teacher like that before. And he did many miracles among the people. We know people that he healed. We know families that he touched. We know men that were able to go back to their job and bless their family because Jesus healed their blindness or their lame legs or he healed their leprosy. And, and so we pinned all of our hopes on him. He brought us to life. He gave us a reason to live. And now, Mr. Stranger, he's gone. We can hardly fathom it, but our own government, our own priests, our own Jewish Sanhedrin took him and handed him over to the cruel Roman government, and they crucified him. And so it's over. 
We can hardly believe that our leaders would have done something like that to us. They delivered him up to death. Jesus is gone. And we're just trying to cope with the heartbreak. When they say that to Jesus, they use a word that in the Greek language, we, we get the English Bible via the Greek language. And um, the, the word in the Greek is uh, paradidomi. You don't have to remember that. There is no test at the end of service. But it, it's a judicial word. It's not just an ordinary conversational word. It's a judicial word. It means handed over in this sense. It means to deliver something or someone into the hands of another. It means to hand something over to somebody else for keeping or to deliver a person into custody to be judged and condemned and punished and put to death. But when you read that word in the scripture, it commonly has a sense of betrayal associated with it. In other words, they didn't hand him over rightly or for any good reason. They handed him over deceitfully and treacherously and they handed him over with lies and with malice and hatred. Now, in light of what happened to Jesus, you would expect the gospel writers to use that word a lot, and they do. In just four gospels, more than 70 times, they use this word, paradidomy, handed over, delivered up, betrayed. And Jesus himself uses that word many times when he talks about his friend Judas, who set in motion Jesus' betrayal by this cruel chain of events that would eventually deliver Jesus to the cross. Here's just, just a scatter shoot. Mark chapter 14, verse 10. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he went to the chief priest, here's that word, to betray, to hand Jesus over, to treacherously misuse and deceive, to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were so glad about that they'd been trying to get rid of Jesus for a while. And they promised to give Judas money, and then Judas sought how we might, here it is again, conveniently betray him. I'm going to wait for my opportunity to hand him over. Mark 14, verse 18. As they sat and did eat, Jesus looked at the men around that table, and he said, Verily I say unto you, my disciples, my friends, one of you that's eating with me right now is going to, here's that word again, you will betray me, you will hand me over, you will deliver me up, you will be a liar and a cheat, and you will treacherously misuse me. John 18, and Judas also, which here's the word again, betrayed him. He knew the place where Jesus was going to pray. Jesus often went there with the disciples. Jesus wasn't trying to hide. Jesus was just carrying on with his ministry and Judas deceitfully betrayed him. And then this one, Luke 22, Jesus said to him, Judas, really? You betray the son of man with a kiss? Really? For many months, Jesus had repeatedly said to his disciples, he had warned them, my betrayal is coming. I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. He clearly told them, you better expect this. And just as clearly, he told them, um, after a certain time, after three days, I will rise again. My death will not be the end. And somehow, you know how it is when somebody says something good to you, but it's coupled with some bad news. You sometimes only hear the bad. Well, that was the disciples. Matthew 20, look how plain Jesus was. 
Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be, here's the word, he's going to be handed over, betrayed, delivered up to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him. There's that word again. They'll deliver him. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And the third day, he shall rise again. And none of them caught that, especially the two on the road to Emmaus. See, they're, they're talking to this stranger, and here's what they think. This is going through their head. Unlike you, Mr. Stranger, we were in Jerusalem. We saw Jesus handed over. We saw him delivered up. We saw him treacherously misused. We saw him handed from one judge to another, one trial to another, one courtroom to another in this cruel mockery of justice. There was everything wrong with those trials political maneuvering and false witnesses and hateful jurors, and the sentence of death was predetermined before the prisoner ever showed up. It was awful. Mark 15, straightway in the morning, the chief priests, they held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and they carried him away. And here's what they did. There's that word again. And they handed him over. They delivered him up. It's a judicial word. It's a treacherous word. It's a betrayal word. They handed him over to Pilate. Verse 15, Pilate willing to contend the people. He released Barabbas, a known murderer, unto the crowd. And here's that word again. It's used everywhere in the Gospels. He handed Jesus over. He delivered Jesus up when he had whipped him to be crucified. So if you had been there, you can criticize these disciples for their lack of faith and their lack of hope. And you can criticize them if you want. But if you had been there, here's what you would have seen. Judas handed Jesus over to the chief priests. And the chief priests handed him over to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate handed him over to King Herod. And King Herod handed him back over to Pilate. And then Pilate handed him over to the guards to be whipped. And then the guards handed him over to the mob. And the soldiers crucified him. He was a victim. He was uh, treacherously misused. He was horribly abused. It was just like watching this travesty of justice handed from one person to another, one trial to another. And so these two disciples on the road to Demaeus, they, they look at this stranger and they basically say, when we saw Jesus handed over, it was like somebody reached inside of our soul and just took every bit of life and love and joy and peace, everything we hope for, and just handed it over to. And so Mr. Stranger... We're not cowards. We stood by him through the trials. We watched him crucified. We, we didn't run at the first sign of trouble. We stayed. In fact, we even stayed for a couple of days after they put him in the ground, in the grave, in the tomb. We're not chicken. We didn't cut and run. But we got to tell you, there is nothing left to believe in. There is no hope now. We have given up. And we are headed home, and we're going to pack up the last little fragments of whatever is left of our lives, and we're going to try to cobble it together, and we're going to eke out the rest of our days feeling bad that we lost the one thing that we could have believed in. Mr. Stranger, it's over. It's done. We're headed home. We've done our bit for king and country. We're out of here. Verse 21, you can hear the pain in their voices. We trusted that it would have been him which would have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, 
It's not like we ran at the first sign of trouble. Today is the third day since these things were done. We waited for three days. What else do you expect? Oh, yeah, there is one other thing. Um, certain women also of our company, they went early to the sepulcher this morning. They made us all kind of astonished. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels and said he was alive. Hmm. And then certain of them that were with us, they went to the grave and they found it exactly like the woman had said. But him, they saw not. So you know what we thought, Mr. Stranger? We, we, our heart didn't even like jump inside of us. When they came back and said they'd seen an angel and there was no body and the angel told them Jesus was alive, you know exactly what we thought. Delusional women, that's what we thought. They're just excitable and they're trying to hope and we've all been hit so hard. And you can criticize those people for their lack of faith if you want. And you could say, come on, when they come back and they tell you about the angel, and don't you know about Easter? No, they didn't know about Easter. Don't you know about like the Christmas? No. All they knew was that the one who had healed and the one who had taught and the one who had done miracles and the one who gave him hope, he was gone. And he was gone in a vicious, brutal, barbaric manner and it just knocked them down. And you can criticize him if you want. But let me tell you, nothing hits us harder than when we lose our hope. It knocks the breath out of us. It steals our joy and it saps our strength and it wounds our heart and it blinds our vision and it rocks our world and sometimes it shakes our faith. And that is exactly what happened to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus that day. Can you imagine how crazy this is? Jesus had said, I'm going to rise on the third day. And on the morning of the third day, they pack up their suitcase and head home to their village. You couldn't even wait till sunset. This is the day, Jesus. But see, they've been hit so hard. You'd think after the women came back from an empty tomb and the women said there's no body in the tomb and the angels gave us a direct message, you, you'd think they would have believed. But before you judge them too harshly and you get up on your a 21st century religious high horse and you look back through the, the, the wonderful history that we know in the church and you look back at all the gospel records, before you do all that, maybe you could look back over your own life or maybe just this week and you could find a time when your hope has been taken and your faith has been shaken. And it is very easy in those moments of your life, to feel like you are all alone and you are very much forsaken. But that's when you've got to remember, somebody is walking beside you even while you're pouring out all your grief and all your hopelessness and all your heartache and all your pain. Somebody has slipped up beside you and he is walking beside you. Now, it's at that moment when the stranger can restrain himself no longer. He just says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. He, he just kind of loses it in a good way. 
Oh, you are so thick-headed and you are so slow-hearted. Couldn't you just have believed all the things the prophets have been saying all these years? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Jesus had to go through all these things. Can't you see it? His suffering was just the pathway to his glory. His death was just the pathway to his resurrection. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? It was necessary that Jesus did all of this. And then that stranger, he begins uh, with the books of Moses, the Bible says. And he walks them through the writings of the prophets. And he literally points out Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. It's, it's amazing. It would have been a far better sermon than the one you're hearing right now. Preached by the Son of God himself. And he just starts at the beginning. Don't you remember uh, in Genesis, God breathed into man and he breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living soul. Don't you understand? Jesus, uh, that was God in flesh. He was there. He's the one who gave us breath to breathe and life to live in the first place. Don't you remember Exodus when Israel had been enslaved for 400 years of bondage? And, and don't you remember there was a Passover lamb and its blood had to be shed and, and it had to be sacrificed and the blood had to be applied to the doorpost. Don't you understand? Jesus, that was a picture of him. He's the lamb who was slain. He's the one whose blood was shed, but his blood wasn't shed by accident. His blood was shed so that we could have a covering and judgment wouldn't fall on us and judgment would pass over us. Don't you remember? Don't, don't you remember when Israel was so rebellious and we were walking through the wilderness and every day it was more desert and more heat and more blistering sun and more sand and, and we were dying in the desert and we were even longing to go back to Egypt. Don't you remember that? But don't you remember from our history that we would get up and our leaders would lead us and we'd walk for miles and miles and miles and nothing but desert and nothing but sand and nothing but heat and we'd be, our throats would would be parched and our lips would be cracked from the heat of the day and we'd be just dying for water. And we'd make camp that night and we'd get up in the morning and there would be a rock there and out of that rock would be flowing water. Don't you remember that? And then the next day we'd walk for miles and we'd go to bed and we'd make camp and we'd get up the next morning and that same rock would be there. That rock followed us supernaturally through all of the wilderness. Don't you understand? That rock was Christ. That rock was Jesus. He was there looking after us. Don't you remember? I don't have time this morning. Don't you remember that pagan heathen king? took three of our beloved boys and they wouldn't bow to his dumb image and they wouldn't worship him like all the other people. And so he got his guards to bind them up and he tossed them into a burning, fiery furnace, but not before he heated it seven times hotter than normal. It incinerated flesh on contact. It incinerated bones on contact. It was a blazing, fiery inferno. But no sooner had those guards tossed those boys in than that king stood up and said, wait a minute, who made a mistake? I thought we tossed three boys into that furnace bound, but I see four people in that fire and they're all walking around loose, worshiping God. And the fourth, he's like the son of God. Don't you get it? That was Jesus. He was on every page of our scripture. 
He had to do this. This was prophesied. This was predicted. It was all part of God's plan. That would have been some sermon that morning preached by Jesus himself. Hmm. And then this happened. Verse 28, they drew near to the village whither they went and the stranger he made as though he would have gone further as if he was going to keep walking and they, they, they constrained him saying, no, 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 no. It's evening. Abide with us. It's toward evening. The day's far spent. And so the stranger, he goes in to tarry with them and they sit down in their little kitchen in their little humble home in Emmaus, that little humble village at the end of that eight mile long dirt road. And uh, it came to pass as he sat at meat with them that he took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to them. And that's when it happened. Now, I can't prove this because Scripture doesn't say it, but I think this is what happened. That when he took that bread and he began to tear it, he began to break it as the custom of the Jews was. And when he began to pass it to them to eat as the custom of the Jews was, all of a sudden they saw something that somehow they hadn't seen all afternoon. They saw mortal wounds in the hands of a man. They knew instantly that anybody with wounds like that, they would have bled out in minutes. But this guy had been walking with them all afternoon on the dirt road to their little village. And when they saw him break the bread and pass it to them, all of a sudden, the Bible says, their eyes were opened and they knew him. And just like that, he vanished out of their sight. That's amazing. And then they vanished too, you know. They said one to another. Now everybody's an expert. If you have friends like that, you know, that when, when Captain Obvious walks in the room and they know everything, they know every detail, they knew it all the time. They didn't know it all the time. But now they're really giving it to each other. Then they said one to another, did not our hearts burn? with? Didn't you feel that? I felt that. I knew who he was all the time. Didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scripture? And they jumped up the same hour and they disappeared too. They went running back to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they found the 11 gathered together and all the people that were with the disciples. And now the narrative has changed. They're all saying, hey, the Lord has risen in indeed and he's appeared to Simon Peter and then these two get in the act and they say wait 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 let us tell you what happened to us today let us tell you about what things were done in the way let us tell you how Jesus revealed himself to us in the breaking of bread it's 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 amazing you see it was when Jesus broke the bread just like he did at the last supper that's when their eyes were opened and when they got back to Jerusalem, they figured it out. Something supernatural had happened. The Lord is risen indeed. Only then did it dawn on all the disciples. All of a sudden, it's like, oh yeah, this was God's plan all along. It looked like death, but it was really life. It looked like defeat, but it was really victory. It looked like a tomb, but it was really resurrection. It looked like God had lost, but we just understand something now. God was actually in the process of winning a great victory. You would have never known that that day. You can criticize him if you want, but if you'd have been there, you'd have bought the same thing too, because here's all they had seen. Judas had handed Jesus over 
to the chief priests. And the chief priests had handed him over to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin handed him over to Pilate and Pilate handed him over to Herod and Herod handed him over back to Pilate and Pilate handed him to the guards and the guards handed him to the mob and the mob handed him over to be crucified. Jesus looked like a wimp and a weakling. He looked like he was not in charge. But on the cross, just before he breathed his last, Jesus said these words in John 19. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, this is the one we always preach. It is finished. And he bowed his head and watch this. And he gave up the ghost. That word is a legal word. It's a judicial word. It happens to be paradidomy. Jesus handed over his spirit. He del- they weren't delivering him to Calvary. He was on a mission to go to Calvary so that at a precise moment of eternal prophecy, he could hand over his spirit. He could hand over his life as a ransom for sin. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him by Judas or the chief priests or the Sanhedrin or Pilate or Herod or the guards or the mob. They only handed him over temporarily. All the time they were working. All the time evil was lurking. Jesus was still large and in charge. He was a man on a mission. Calvary was an ambush that the forces of hell didn't see coming. (laughs) Jesus was in complete control the entire time. And let me tell you, hell fell for it. The devil fell for it. Jesus had said in John 10, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back up again. You remember Jesus looked at a crowd one day way back in John 2 at the beginning of his ministry. He said, you destroy this temple, but in three days I will raise it up. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying, hell, you can do your worst, but I can turn any defeat into a victory. I can turn any funeral into a resurrection. I can turn any kind of attack into an absolute victory for heaven. You, you remember Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus? You remember them? We, we were talking about them the other day. Um, it was a dysfunctional family a little bit. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, three siblings. They lived in Bethany, and Jesus and his disciples often stayed there. And Mary was the spiritual one of the three. She was always sitting at the feet of Jesus, always very prayerful, always had her Bible on her lap, always just enjoying Jesus. And her sister Martha, she was always in the kitchen banging pots and pans around, trying to hint to Mary, you should get up off your knees and stop listening to Jesus and come help me fix dinner. And so Lazarus, he just died early to get out of that because he was not sticking around for that. Like, I'm done. This is these two. And then Jesus raises him from the dead and said, "Uh, uh, uh, not that easy. Sends him back. But in all seriousness, the day Lazarus died, it shook that little family to its core. And uh, Jesus, they did not understand. Jesus could have come instantly, but he didn't. Jesus could have come the same day, but he didn't. Jesus could have come the next day, but he didn't. Jesus could have at least come for the funeral, but he didn't. And he shows up late. And it's Martha this time who walks out to him in John 11. She said, Jesus, if you'd just been here, you didn't show up. You didn't come through. You didn't help us. If you'd just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
Jesus, at our moment of pain, at our moment of grief, at our moment when we were the lowest and the least, he didn't show up for us. Jesus, you left us alone. And Jesus basically looked back at his friend and he said, oh, Martha, with me, you're never alone. Jesus said to her, here's what I want you to know. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even though he were dead, yet shall he live. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying when hell unfolds, the worst case scenario in your life, that is not the end of the story. Even if death were to happen, Jesus can bring life out of death. If defeat happens, Jesus can bring victory out of a defeat. If sickness happens, Jesus can bring healing out of sickness. If the enemy is attacking your family and your mind and your home and your marriage and your finances and you feel like all hope is lost, here's the word from Jesus. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Though all hope is lost, I can bring hope. Though it's all messed up, I can turn it around. You're never alone when you have me. Now this, this is kind of amazing. This is really amazing. After his crucifixion, Jesus went into the grave. Because in the Old Testament, long story theologically, but the realm of death, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, the realm of death was controlled by the devil. And the Bible tells us, in the words of Peter, in his epistle, the Bible says that Jesus literally went into the grave and he preached to the spirits that were in the prison house of death. That's another great sermon that would be better than this one this morning, but we don't have Jesus here in flesh to preach that sermon. Let me tell you, he is here in spirit. He can do whatever he wants. And in that sermon, we don't have it, but I think what happened is he declared his victory to all the domain of hell. He declared his victory over sin. He declared his triumph over the devil. He declared his conquering of death. He declared his authority over hell. And he declared, I am not staying here. I'm going to bust this grave wide open and you're not keeping me here. I'm walking out. Oh, and then just one more thing before I go. You know those keys, devil? You know those keys that you've, wor- you've worked so hard? You have locked up my people for thousands of years. You've locked them up in addiction and you've locked them up in bondage and you've locked them up in pain and you've locked them up in sorrow. You know those keys. You know the keys that you have and they're so scared of your keys because you have the keys to death and the grave and hell and everybody's scared. They're all going to the gym. They're all eating gluten-free. They're just trying to stave off that death death appointment. They just are scared of death. The Bible says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The thing we're most afraid of is death. It's the great unknown. It's what we try to push back and push off and stay away from. Jesus said, devil, you know those keys that my people are so afraid of? You know those keys that you've been using to lock my people up? Hand them over. Jesus wasn't being handed over. He was walking into the domain of hell itself so he could take the keys to every enemy you've ever faced and pull them out of the domain of the devil. And today he has the keys. He's alive forevermore. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead. I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and of death. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
Let me ask you a question. If Jesus conquered your worst enemy, your greatest enemy, and your most fearful enemy first, if he conquered your greatest enemy, death and the grave and hell, if he conquered that 2,000 years ago, what do you think he could do with all the little enemies you're facing today in your life? If he conquered the big one first, everything else is downhill for them. Let me ask you one more question. If the devil doesn't even have the keys to lock up his own domain anymore, why would you let the devil lock up your marriage and lock up your kids and lock up your mind and lock up your life? If he doesn't even have the keys to his own house, why would you let him lock up your house? If he doesn't even have the keys to where he lives, why would you let him mess up where you live? Music, come on back. I'm almost done. I just, there's one detail that, you know, I'm one of those readers of scripture that little things mess me up sometimes. And there's just one detail about this wonderful story that only Luke records in any detail at all. We wouldn't even know about this if it hadn't been for Luke. But there's just one detail that I just noticed something and it just kind of, it worked on my mind. And, and, and I've been part of the church. I, I've been part of the church all my life, but I've been in ministry 35 years or something. I, I've heard a lot of sermons, a lot of preachers. And here's what I've noticed. Nearly every commentator, nearly every preacher, and nearly every artist or singer or songwriter that has ever addressed that day and those disciples and the appearance of that stranger on that road, nearly every single one of them, they miss this. And I don't know how they miss it because it's in the Bible just as plain as the nose on your face. Here it is. Can I show you? John chapter 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. There it is, right there. Cleopas' wife was at the cross. She stood right there till the very end. She also saw Jesus die. That's not two men walking home. That's a husband and wife walking home on the road to Emmaus, to their little village, to their little home. And like many couples that I've met, their self-talk, the talk between themselves as they go home, is much different than the talk you would hear them talk in church or in public. They're real when they're alone. They're real when it's just the two of them. They're real when they have to walk home. And so they're talking defeat and depression. And oh, they, they, they said goodbye and hugged everybody's neck and said, we're praying for you. But when they went home, that's when it all came out. That's when all the truth came out. Our life's a mess. It's never going to be the same. It's over. We're done. They're headed home talking about defeat. They're headed home talking about sadness and heartache and depression. And they don't even realize that the greatest miracle in human history just happened behind their shoulder back in Jerusalem. Listen, listen. They are walking away from their miracle. 
They are walking away from their victory. They are walking in the wrong direction. And Jesus, this is a pretty busy weekend for Jesus, you know. He's got to give his life a ransom for sin. He's got to go in the grave. He's got to go into the prison and preach to the spirits in prison and rise from the dead and present his blood in the heavens. It's a pretty busy weekend for him. But he's so merciful and he's so loving and he's so good that even when this little husband and wife are walking home to their shattered existence and they know their life, their home, their family, their kids, their marriage, it's never going to be the same. He loves them so much that he catches up to them on this little dirt road to their village and he spends the entire afternoon walking with these people that are walking in the wrong direction away from their miracle. And he turns them around and he reveals them himself to them and then they go running back to their miracle. They go running back to Jerusalem. <laughs> so I... I I just have one question and one statement. That's all I got today. I just got one question and one statement. And here's the question. What's really being talked about in your home today? What is really the atmosphere in your home today? What are you really struggling with in your home today? That's, that's my question. And here's my statement. You don't understand it. You haven't recognized it yet. But on your worst day... In your most disastrous week, in your month filled with failure and, and your own fickleness and your own frailty. Here's what you don't understand. Here's, here's my statement for you. Hope just caught up with you this morning. And hope wants to walk home with you today. Hope wants to get in your car and he wants to go home to your kitchen and sit in your living room and say, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be over. It can begin today. It can be restored today. It can be healed today. It can be your miracle today. Would you lift up your hands? And more important than your hands, would you lift up your voice? And way more important than your voice, would you lift up your worship to Jesus today? Because he's in this room. Jesus literally wants to go home with some people today. I know you put on a nice front and you were so friendly and so kind and you smiled so pretty and your dress so sharp. But Jesus, he's the real God. He knows about the real you. And he wants to get in your car and he wants to go home with you and he wants to heal some things and he wants to fix some things and he wants to restore some things. (laughs) And you're in such a good place today because here's what I know about this great church. We've already been to the altar two, three times in this service. We just kind of keep engaging in the presence of God. It's not a formality to us. It's not this little kind of decision time when you make a mental note, yeah, I'm going to change. No, 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 no. It's literally about being in the presence of Jesus because the same one who died on the cross, the same one who went into the tomb, the same one who rose from the grave, the same one who walked with that little husband and wife on that little dirt road to their little humble home in that little tiny village, He's come to Terre Haute into this service today. We don't imagine he's here. We know he's here.
We're not hoping he shows up. He already has showed up. And so we're going to come to the altar as one family, as one body, as one group. But in just a moment, I'm going to ask everybody to just pray. And if you can, and, and this is you, and you need Jesus to go home with you today because there's a situation with your teenager, or there's a situation with your marriage, or there's a situation with health. They're already starting. So, so would you just slip out? Nobody's watching you. We're all just the same. We're all people. We, we all got issues. Would you just slip out of where you're standing, or would you make your way as quickly as you can to the front? Because we want to pray alongside of you today. And Jesus is going to touch somebody's life. I, I, I know we're, we're growing here. So, so when you come, would you come as close to the front as you can? Maybe take two or three extra steps and just kind of clear the aisle so as many people as possible can just kind of push their way into the presence.